in just a minute. I'm going to read through Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Go to the Lord in prayer, do a little review, and then get into this afternoon's subject matter. Uh, and when he was entered into the ship, his disciples followed him. Of course, this is talking about Christ. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea. In so much, in it, uh, yeah, in it so much that the ship was covered with waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are to be in your house this day, to be among your people. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you bless our time. And Lord, may we marvel at the manner of person that you are and understand who you are, Lord, that we might be able to serve you more. And Lord, we do. We are grieved about what we hear when people make a profession of faith, like Mark Walker by name, Lord, who has stood up in the pulpit of a church and claimed to be a believer in Christ and uh, Lord, been allowed to preach before hundreds of people, uh, Lord, who did bring a biblical message on that day. I don't understand why such a man can not easily see his responsibilities, but Lord, perhaps what we're dealing with here today, the fear that people have, and Lord, why it causes us problems in our faith, and Lord, as we go through this study time, I just pray that you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, that they might be acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Now, just to get a little bit of background, uh, we stopped off last week in Matthew 8, where Jesus had rebuked the wind and the waves, uh, uh, and then he rebuked his disciples for their lack of, of weak faith. And uh, again, just uh, go back to the basic uh, or, or the profound statement of what faith is. It's a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So as a believer in Christ, I'm not standing here and when I say hoped for the fact that it's like, oh boy, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon when I go home. I don't know whether it will or it won't. No, I'm saying I know effectively, although the thing which I have my faith resting in is yet to be realized, it will be, or it's as good as realized. So I am, as a believer, seated at the right hand of God with uh, the beloved on high, as you are, as a believer, and we can rest in that. So just a quick uh, recap, uh, Christ had commanded uh, his disciples, as a living word, he had commanded his disciples to pass to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and most of the sailors, in the, I mean, most of the disciples in that ship were sailors. They were seasoned veterans out on the sea. So this was not something that was unusual for them. It should have been a very familiar and easy task for them to accomplish. And then along comes the expected storm that we talked about last week, which was a life-threatening storm uh, that sent them to Christ in a panicked frenzy. And then we find that Jesus was, uh, had fallen asleep at the back of the ship on a pillow, and he's roused by his disciples, at which times he, he gets up, and uh, he miraculously rebukes the winds and the waves. And then we came to the focal point where Christ criticizes the sinfully weak state of the disciples' understanding and their exercise of their faith. And there's nothing to be commended about having weak faith. 
And this is why this is important that we understand where we're going with this. Um, I'm going to branch off a little bit from the passage here before we get back to the conclusion of it. But the men in the ship with Jesus are, uh, had yet to put their highest degree of faith in, in, in the living word of God. When he said, let's pass to the other side of, uh, uh, to, to, of the sea, what should their expectation have been? What should their hope have been? We will pass to the other side because he has said that we would do so. And they were going and they did so. But that's not where their hearts were, was it? That's not what their belief was at the moment they went to wake him up. They weren't like, hey, wake up, wake up. Look at this great storm out here. You know, they were going back there because they did not think that he was going to be able to get them across to the other side. They just didn't know where else to turn to because they did have what? Some faith. So this is exactly what we've got to look at. So, But faith is given to us by God. So do we have an imperfect gift from God? No, it's not. It's perfect. Uh, that faith has to be developed, and that was the cooperative part that Pastor talked about today toward the end of the message about being a spirit-filled believer. You have to study the Word of God to show yourself approved in the God of workmen and needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of, of truth. And, and uh, then the Holy Spirit does what? As we heard again this morning, He comes and He brings the Word of God, and working with the Word of God in conjunction with that, He brings us or guides us in all truth so we know the will of God. And that was a great point. So many times I, over the years, I've heard people, I don't know what the will of God is. I don't know what the will of God is. We'll read it. It's right here. Uh, we have to understand that. But people don't like to read. We don't like to take the time uh, in our society. But anyway, we have all the essentials to develop faith. So if we don't develop our faith, whose fault is it? Yeah, it's, it's my fault when my faith is not where it needs to be. It's not your fault. It's not Pastor Bledsoe's fault. It's my fault. Okay, I'm guilty. Okay, so that's the whole issue. But I want to do a further study on the subject of biblical faith by examining the key factor here that, that was impeding the faith of these, uh, of these disciples at this moment, and that's fear. That's fear. Now, we read much about fear and say, well, aren't we supposed to fear God, work our salvation out with what? Fear and trembling. But at the same time, they're being rebuked for fearing. And the words are oftentimes, the word fear is oftentimes the same in both uh, passages when you read it. So we have to understand more than I can just tell you, well, don't be afraid. Well, yeah, but then you need to be afraid. Well, one's a reverential fear, and we can say that truthfully, and the other is not. But we want to learn a little bit more about it than that, because I don't know that that solves the whole problem, at least wise to wrap our minds about it. But again, here's the criticism. Where is your faith, he says in Luke? Why are you so fearful? How is it you have no faith, he says in Mark to his disciples. And then lastly, in the passage that we read, it says, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Now, without the proper knowledge and exercise of faith, what is it? Is it possible to please God? No. It's impossible to please God without faith. For the person that comes to God has to do what? Has to believe that he is? Huh? diligently seek him out that work at seeking him out so there's work involved in this going back to studying the scriptures and to fail to have faith in christ means that you can never please god you can never please your heavenly father and in one sense it's to call him a liar as well if you don't have faith i just don't trust you jesus i'll 
I'll, I'll meet you halfway. I, I know you've got good intentions to want to get me to the other side, but I really, you know, we'll handle it. We're professional sailors, and we know we're in trouble here. Well, no, you don't. You only know so much, even if you're a, quote, expert. None of us know as much as the Lord does, and this is what we've got to realize. So faith is essential, and it has to be, we have to thoroughly strive to understand it and grow in it so that it can humble us, and faith does humble you. Can you imagine a bunch of people who were seasoned at being out on the ocean or the sea, I mean, in a storm, and they had to go back and talk to this itinerant teacher who they barely knew to try to save them because they could not save themselves? That's quite a predicament to be in. So that's what they had to do. They had to humble themselves, and, and, and then faith also empowers us to seek out God, to know him, and to do his will, even to the point of physical death. Now, a lot of us don't like to think about that, do we? I don't like thinking about pouring out my life unto death, but you do that even in the sense of when you have to go when you're tired and you serve the Lord. I know it's not dramatic, but a lot of times when you're pouring your resources out before the Lord, you know, you're driven to do something when you're tired, but yet you're going to serve God. That, that's part of that pouring out of your life there. Then instead of saying, well, you know, I just need a break. I'm going to go take a, a little nap here. I'm not going to serve because I can't do it. But, but it tells us in, in, in Romans 8, it says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are, uh, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, we don't take that literally, do we? I don't think I'm a sheep being slaughtered. Well, yeah, you are because they're very sobering words and they're very clear. Is the world slaughtering God's people all the time? They're slaughtering babies. They're slaughtering people around the world. We're not persecuted right now, but that doesn't mean we won't be tomorrow. And, and so they chew on us. Uh, as Matthew Henry, I liked how he said it, they chew on us like meat for their malice. They hate Christianity. You know, and you're starting to see this percolate up to the surface in America, aren't you? You, you know, uh, recently I read a, uh, an account of a school board member wearing cat ears, uh, being interviewed, saying we don't need to have these Christians influencing our children. We should no longer hire Christian teachers. They're unfit for public education. Up in Minnesota, which is beginning to trying to pass a law right now that if you say certain things, they're going to put your name into a database because you do not fit their public agenda for hate speech. And they're going to track you from that point forward. It can be something that you can say, well, you could uh, call out a racial slur as you're going down the road and if the police pull you over, they'll have the right to do that. Write your uh, license uh, plate down, take your name, your address, put you on a list and begin to pursue you. And that would also apply if you stand up in a church that you'll be and, and say, well, homosexual marriage is not, uh, uh, is, not uh, is a sin. Um, then, then you go in that same database, just like they're doing in Canada. So, so it's coming right now, and they're trying to stand up against that. Thankfully up there, I hope, because of the way the laws are structured, they can't get such a matter in hand. But we understand that this type of persecution could come along uh, at any time. But when was a lamb most useful? Was it most useful when it was alive, or was it most useful when it was, when it was slaughtered? slaughtered because it acted as a sacrifice it acted as food so as sheep that's exactly 
what's being said here is that we are more useful perhaps in death. Uh, Christ was certainly not that he was not useful, highly useful while he was alive, but uh, was he not more effective through his death and his resurrection? Well, a- absolutely he was. So we have, he was slain to take away the sins of the world. So we have to think uh, as believers that we have faith large enough to, to, to be sufficient to carry us all the way un- uh, up to and through death. Okay? So, so that's the goal. And if we have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, then we'll be able to say to a mountain, you know, remove yourself hence uh, to that yonder place, and it'll be what? Removed. Well, that's pretty phenomenal faith. That's not just I want to have a bigger bank account, name it and claim it type thing, but nothing would be impossible for us if that was the case, including being able to echo with Paul, death, whereas that sting, old grave, where is thy victory? You know, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. Now, when we see situations like this today where we're down in number or people aren't packing out church houses like they used to, it may feel like hell is winning. But hell is not winning. Hell is never going to win, and we are an offensive unit. So when it says the gates of hell are not going to prevail against us, it's exactly what we're talking about downstairs of taking the fight to the gates of hell. Abortion exists at the gates of hell, okay? It's a sin-ridden issue, and we've got to face it down. So, so, but what's the hardest part that we face? Fear. We're afraid. And I'm not talking about what everybody else is. Mark Walker is a coward. If he was standing here to stand up in the pulpit, and the more I'm thinking about this, the more angry I get about it, but he should be able to easily say if he's going to get in a pulpit and represent God, it's murder. She shouldn't have to talk Mark Walker into doing this. And that's nothing but an excuse for him to maintain his power in his office so he can stay in that office. Now, I know we got to deal with that, and I'm not getting political here, but uh, it is irritating to, to think about it. Now, where did this fear come from, though? Well, let's turn over to Genesis chapter 3 so we can look at the roots of it. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, uh, uh, yeah, uh, chapter 3, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now this is after they've sinned, and now they're in hiding, uh, as God is there to seek them out. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Now he knew where he was all along, so that's not the issue. And Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, this event can truly be described as the sum of all fears, okay? Which is, by the way, from a quote by Winston Churchill, not Tom Clancy's book. But anyway, um, but thanks to uh, Adam's sin, he was responsible for placing himself or putting himself into a predicament, a new state of, a terrible state of mind, a twisted, uh, fear-ridden state of mind, especially a sinful fear of God. Uh, And the only person that's going to get Adam out of this fix is God. He's the only one that's going to get Adam over his fear. Okay? Uh, There's no other hope. Adam was aware that his relationship to God, his creator, had changed 
But do you think that Adam was repentant at that point? The answer is no, he was not. He is not repenting in this scene. Now, he's cowering in fear, and fear can sometimes make us believe that people are repentant, but fear in itself does not make you repentant. It just means you're afraid. And so he is afraid, uh, but he was not repentant. He was quite happy in his circumstance. In fact, uh, one of the things that you have trouble with people, you know what the opposite of repentance is? Happiness. Satisfaction. Yep. Because you're complacent where you are. Now, it's okay to be complacent in Christ. That's a good place to be complacent. But it's a bad place when you're unrepentant. And, and so that's what it means is I don't want to change, so I'm not going to repent. Why would I repent? But so he was content. He was unrepentant. He was happy with where he was. And so what he did, instead of going to God, which is what a repentant person would have done, confessed his sin and sought out God's help, what did Adam do? He covered his sin. And that's what people who, want, who are fearful do. They cover their sin thinking, well, I'm going to be okay. They're unrepentant. And they thought, well, this will be okay. He probably said, Eve, I think this will make it okay. You know, we'll, we'll get through this. But he was a devilish person in that sense. And uh, he, he feared and trembled, but he was not contrite in heart. Uh, and we have to remember that because there is what? A godly sorrow that worketh repentance, but there is a, a, a sorrow of the world that worketh death. And that's really where Adam was. So uh, prior to sinning against God, humans did not have fear. Adam, Adam and Eve were not afraid prior to that point in life. Uh, not the way that we are today, but since the fall, it's been nothing but an unceasing fear fest. You know, that's why we're warned about worry. Well, what's worry based upon fear? You know, that's what exactly concerning the earthly life. What do we fear? Well, I don't want to be deprived of, of life, the lack of necessities. Uh, you know, I don't want to be poor, not have food or raiment. Uh, I don't want to be uh, without worldly possessions to fill my barns. Or the, the uh, new phrase here, FOMO. What is that? The fear of missing out. Boy, I don't want to miss out in life. Uh, that, that's what we don't want to do. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, what do all these uh, result in when we have these fears? Well, we rob. Uh, we're greedy. We're adulterous. We're drunks. Uh, and you could go on and on. We're liars, etc. But then when we come into the kingdom, we still carry some of these, uh, the residue of that type of thinking over into it. And when it comes down to kingdom living, uh, we get to sit here, and I sometimes, uh, it's just my warped sense of humor. I think it's, uh, well, when you become a Christian, you get to become disciplined. Uh, you get to be chastened. You get to go through trials and tribulations and persecutions, self-sacrifice, biblical mortification, and you may even face death. Well, that's like, wow, that's really a good sales pitch, isn't it? We are sheep for the slaughter. Well, that doesn't appeal to our flesh at all, does it? Until you really know who Jesus Christ is, you know who your God is, you know what your, your, your destiny is and, and eternity and so forth. Then all of a sudden you begin to put these things together. But that takes a while for those things to gel with us. And even when we're going through them, they're not pleasant, are they? I do not think what these disciples were experiencing in this ship with Jesus Christ was pleasant. They were in stark fear. Okay, this was not like just mild. This is, man, my life is hanging by a string. I don't know what to do. I'm panicked. Now, you may have been there, maybe not. I don't know. 
But, but, but a thought of any of these events that I've mentioned here from the kingdom, much less all of them possibly happening to us, will cause the strongest among us to cower. So I'm not being uh, judgmental here. Uh, I thought about a, a line from a Ron Hamilton song. It says, death, and I changed it a little bit. Death is all around us. Day is fading fast. Sin has paid its wages, and life will soon be past. Well, as a believer, you realize that death is all around us. In ancient times, they used to realize death was all around you, you, you know, which is a big difference. You know, uh, you stuck a rusty piece of metal in you back in that day, it was like, uh-oh. Or you, you had a minor cut that become infected, you could die. So people didn't have the same luxuries. They didn't say, well, let's go down to uh, uh, Walgreens and get something and pour on it and, or go to the doctor. They didn't have those options. Uh, there were a lot of things that would threaten to kill them all the time, so they were thinking more of it. Now we think we've kind of got it in, 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 uh, under control, don't we? Uh, and we saw this in the pandemic, of course. Uh, people think that we really have uh, death under control. We do not. Uh, when we look at all these uh, situations, it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy for me. Man, I can't believe these dumb old disciples didn't know who they were in the boat with and what they were faced with. Well, that's because my feet are on dry ground and I'm not in the ship. I can't swim. If I was in the boat alone, that would make me afraid. I do not like being on the water because of that reason. Um, so, so we have to realize that. But it's a lot easier when somebody else loses their job or they have a financial situation or a health threat for me to sit back and say, man, I don't know what your problem is, why you're so worried. You, you, you know, well, I'm not sick. For one thing, I've got my job as far as I know until I lose it. But we have to understand that, that, that fear is always present uh, possibility for us if we're not careful. So this isn't going to be simple for me to begin to explain this, and I don't intend to it, so this is not three points in an application, because I do want to take a little bit of time to explain one thing before we wrap this up, and that's where we are in, in our history. We're in a post-truth culture, and what a post-truth culture does is it promotes doubt and fear as virtues. I want you to understand that. Doubt and fear in a post-truth world are, are virtues. And Christians love this type of thing. Pastor hit it this morning. Or just flesh. Well, what does that mean? That is a result of us being in a This is why you're hearing this come out of Christians' mouths. We're in a post-truth culture. Or just flesh. And, and I, I don't want to spend too much time right here but and I'm not a philosopher in fact when I was in, in college I'm actually going to use something I learned in a class and I thought when I heard it this is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my life only an idiot would believe it uh, and, and there's no way anybody in life would ever believe this but you know what that guy taught me is happening today so this is why it's relevant. And then I heard a guy who was a philosopher say, yeah, everybody thinks we're a bunch of idiots who just sit around in a classroom, but actually philosophers, what they do is they project what will happen in societies 40 and 50 years out. That's why everybody thinks they're goofballs. Now looking back, I'm sitting there thinking, man, what that guy said was true because I heard that back in 19, probably 85-ish or so. Look where we are today, and what that guy said is now relevant to what is happening. But anyway... I'm not going to get into modernism and all that, postmodernism and those, and those cycles we went through. I don't, I don't necessarily think labels are totally accurate, but they do serve as a general idea for where we came from. 
But really what modernism did back in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, was uh, it was a rejection of the prior culture that tied us back to the providence of God. So that's where we got disconnected. We began. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen that all the United States fell away in one fell swoop. It's, it was beginning to be an undocking from that truth. You don't hear people. You read what George Washington says, and George Washington was always talking about providence, providence, providence. Providence said that, you know, resulted in this. You don't see the president of the United States talking about providence anymore. And the reason for it is we're undocked. From this pre, this is exactly what I'm saying. Modernism uh, undocked us from that type it were, uh, of thinking. It didn't divorce us from God because you can't get it all. It, it, it's incrementalism that, that, that Bronnie brought up. We can't get there all in one fell swoop. Well, that's what the devil knows. We can't get there all in one. I got plenty of time. I'm walking around like a roaring lion because I got plenty of time to get you undocked from the truth. I got decades if I need it because he, he is who he is. But anyway. So, so we got a little undocked from that idea that God was the center of our meaning as a human being. And then we got into the postmodern uh, time uh, where there's still uh, uh, varying versions of God are acceptable, but it, it took it down to more of an individual level, okay, to where we are today. So when I say we're in a post-truth phase, I'm just saying we're probably at the next phase, at the very beginning of undocking from postmodernism. So, so that we're becoming, and I used to hear these terms and think, man, I, my eyes would glaze over. I hope yours is not. I'm trying to make this relevant, or, or, and I hate that word, but I just used it. Uh, I'm trying to make this, uh, applic- yes, thank you. That's the better word, a- applicable to where we are. Thank you, Sterling. So that's what we are. It is applicable. Now, with that said, all those terms, there's nothing new under the sun. Because you're going to find out, was modernism and postmodernism and post-truth uh, culture uh, alive and well in the days of the Bible, yeah, they were. So we're going to put them in. I'm using these modern terms to allow us to see how we got there, but I'm not really wanting to to do anything more than that with them. So when I said that post-truth era is strongly promotes doubt and ungodly fears, virtues, that is a huge negative influence on every one of us, including the church, and including some of us, or all of us, I should say. It's a hurdle that we have to all understand and overcome. So what happens is that where postmodern worldview was at some truth is completely individualistic, subjective, and resides solely within the individual. Uh, When you come to this post-truth, it's all. All truth is just personal. Charlie has his truth. I have my truth. Amanda's got her truth. Luke's got his truth. There's no one truth. There's just a whole bunch of different, as many truths as we need to have. If I want to wear cat ears as, that, as a member of that school board and pretend I'm a cat, that's okay. That's your truth. That's great. You go, girl, is how we say. Or I like this one, and I hate hearing the saying, you be you. Well, I don't want you to be you because you're terrible. I'm sorry. In and of yourself, the you, you're a criminal. I hate to tell you all that. And you say, that's terrible. The, the, one of the pastors called us criminals, but um, we are. We're not victims. I am going to stand before you publicly and tell you I'm not a victim of sin. I'm a perpetrator of sin. Okay? I have been delivered from sin, but if God wants to accuse me of being a criminal and guilty of sin, he can. Uh, he, he definitely can. 
So so what happens now, where are we? Is there any absolute truce? No, not according to the culture. Now, according to the scriptures, yes, there are absolute truths. This is why this becomes so important that you hold people's feet to the fire on, well, I don't know what else happens. You know, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I had a guy at work tell me uh, basically how God is, is a fictional individual. I said, well, that's okay. God's got a way of defictionalizing himself upon your death. You'll find out he's not as fictional as you think that he is. And he, did, he started backing up after that. You say, well, that's not loving. Really? What is? Oh, yeah, you're right. I, I just believe in this false. It just makes me feel so warm and fuzzy when I read the Bible. You should try it some. That's not how you're going to win anybody at all. You're only going to win them by, by lovingly giving them the truths from God's word. So we have to be absolute uh, and sure of what we're telling them. So that would mean in this world there are no truths uh, as a society that are self-evident. Now, where did I get that verbiage from? Yes, the Declaration of Independence. Those guys thought there were self-evident truths. Some of them were, guess what? We're all created. Huh. Well, who were we created by? A God. Even Thomas Jefferson, who was hardly the poster child for uh, sound theology, thought we were created by a divine being. So the only thing about equality that's true now in today's eyes is it isn't. There isn't any such thing as equality. And there's no certain unalienable rights because all rights are fluid. Okay? Uh, and certainly can only mean that everything is quite uncertain. That's all that we mean. So, so all that goes by the wayside. And post-truth uh, thinkers uh, publicly express a desire for human freedom diversity of human experience and a multiplicity of perspectives of, uh, but they, they, what they really are are non-diverse monolithic and totalitarian thinkers and this is what you've got to realize and we are in an age now that technology has made it possible that we could have an, a, a, a legitimate stab at somebody becoming a totalitarian Stalin could not be a totalitarian. Now that's what they called him. Same thing with Hitler, because they just did not have the technology to carry out their plan. But we know as the end times come along and the Antichrist emerges, he's going to have that ability. And that's what technology does along the way, is it gives people the ability to uh, control things like put your name into a database, find out where you live and track you, put a chip in your arm, find out what's going on, where are you going? You know, and you say, well, this science fiction, it's not really going to happen. Well, I don't know. But anyway, they tolerate no other view but their own. Uh, If you don't wear a mask, if you don't get an immunization, boom, you're out of here. You know, uh, Maxi B's, which makes great cakes, is is to the hilt a pro-abortionist business. Every dollar you put in their pocket goes to support the very thing that we just talked about downstairs. They fired every person who would not get an immunization. If you will not bend a knee to the God of the the government, Maxi B's is putting you out on the street. The United States did not let, uh, what was that foreign, uh, the Australian guy, I don't know much about tennis, I can't remember, did not let him back in because guess what? Recently, he has not had his immunization for COVID. And like that's a big problem or the problem it was. You see what I'm saying? They're going in this direction. And I'm not trying, but this is the thing that puts fear in us, is it not? 
Well, I'm not afraid of that type of thing because it just means God's going to be all the more strong for his people because the gates of hell are not going to prevail against us. And I need to be wise. And when I do take a vaccination or whatever I comply with the government, I'm not against the government, not in any stretch of the imagination. I don't want to give you any impression, but this is how it begins to manifest itself. So post-truth is post-modernism on steroids, and I'm going to give you the term that I learned from this guy is solipsistic in nature. Now, most people would say, what in the world is solipsistic? I I just remember it. I remember it the first time I heard it because it was so stupid, I could not forget it. It was in my head and thought. But solipsism, a person who is a solipsist believes that nobody else exists except them. You're all figments of my imagination. I make you up as you're in the room. And when you leave the room, so to speak, the noises out there are also just figments of my imagination that generate, so I'll think there's a bigger world than me, but I'm really the only person here. I'm the only person in the individual in existence. And you're sitting there thinking, that is just dumb. But there is a philosophy. But is that not where we are today? In large measure, I'm not saying we're whole, wholeheartedly there, but there are people there that think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a cat. Really, you're a cat? Well, that's my reality. I'm going to go live in the metaverse, whatever that is. And, that's being, and people are going to put on those uh, VR glasses and be happy that all they do is live out there all the time. And, and, and it's primed. We're all primed to live on our phones. You're already going there. And you have to be careful about getting your head out of your technology sometimes. And if, you've not, if, you, if you can't forget your phone without feeling paranoid, like I gotta go back and get my phone, you've got a problem. You know, you should be able to throw your phone and forget it. I forgot mine the other day and I thought, I was halfway down the road and I thought, well, I, I just won't be calling anybody. <laughs> but, but you have to just realize that we can't be tied to that type of thing, but that's, that's how it gets us and we're geared toward that anyway. And you say, well, that's crazy. I'm not going to have you turn there, but if I could, uh, or uh, later on, you need to go read Psalm chapter 2. And those people wanted all the authority of God off of their shoulders. I do not want any bond. So why are the heathen raging and, and the people's imagining a vain thing? This is a vain thing. Solipsism is a, is a vain thing. The stupid post-truth stuff you're seeing on there, it's a vain thing, Okay. It's like watching Wiley Coyote, if you remember. He would chase the roadrunner, and he'd always shoot out over the cliff. And then what happened? He'd go, phew, reality set in. I feel like the world is Wiley Coyote right now. They're out there in the air, and they got nothing under them. And they're sitting there thinking, see how wise we are? It's like, no, you have air under you. They're not going to last. That's why I don't have to be afraid, why you don't have to be afraid. It's not going to last. You you know, this can't stand because it's not reality. And the great reality is who? God. So God's not going to allow that to continue to persist because it can't. That's not the design. Uh, Guess what? If you had nothing but same-sex marriage, it wouldn't take but about one generation for all of humanity to poof and disappear. Because there's not going to be any kids if they're going to be strict uh, in that practice. So we have to understand that, that we have to guard our minds against this because it's very hard, even though it's as silly as I'm saying it is, this is hard to deal with people on because there's no logic behind it. You go in and, and, and you try to have a conversation with people 
And, and I'm thinking, well, they're not, they're not solipsists. There's no way anybody can be that crazy. And then I realize, oh, yeah, they are. You, you know, and sometimes you'll hear it put like, well, we just may have to face it. People don't believe what we believe. And that's true. They don't. And we can't make them believe it. Ultimately, we can only testify to it. They hold the truth and unrighteousness. And we have a God-sized problem. And it's going to take God's word to get us out of it. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by what? Not my opinion. Not your opinion. Not the tone of our voice. Nothing. So yeah, I don't have to sit down with somebody and hold their hand and say, if I can just hold their hand and tell them about Jesus, they'll come to Jesus. No, that's not how that works. It comes through the word of God. So one of the greatest challenges is, too, with post-truth, and this is something, and, and we're about down to where we're going to cut off here in just a second, but um, is that it fights almost on a purely emotional basis. This is where you get in trouble because a person that's truly emotional, it, it can take the shape of a room, and they're counterpunchers. They're not offensive people. What happens is they wait for you to say something so they can emotionally swoop in and comfort the person. Oh, no, the what we believe is not that bad. You know, you're not going to have to worry about being a sheep for the slaughter. What kind of insane people would think that? They must, oh, Christianity is a bloody religion. Have you ever heard about the blood of Christ? Who wants that? Or as Oprah said, I don't want a jealous God. If he's that way, I'm not going to have anything to do with him. And I heard that out of her own mouth. So uh, they're counterpunchers. They want to, to set things up that appeal to our flesh. And in a post-truth world, you're heroic or you're virtuous when you emotionally address the felt needs of others rather than the actual real needs that they have. Let me just pat you on the back and tell you everything's going to be okay. You know, I know it looks bad now, but that adultery committed, you, you have found love now. That You found an oasis. You should go to this new woman and you should enjoy her company. That woman you've married for 20 years, yeah, I know how it is when you get that way. Uh, you know, that's the type of thing you have to deal with. And it's like, no, that's not a covenant, is it? You know, a covenant is you better be bleeding to get out of that thing. And I know that sounds harsh, but that's what you went into. And that's what you should do. And I'm going to tell you, I was raised by an honorable set of parents and a particular honorable father. And, and he's going to go down in a fight with you. So I've learned it from an earthly father who he didn't learn it necessarily through the scriptures. He learned it somewhere. But I, I, I can promise you this, as, as loyal as he is, uh, his, the, the God that created him and the God that is my Savior is, is more loyal than that. He sent his son on, to, to die on the cross at Calvary and shed his blood for me. He, he's, he's got an interest, vested interest in me. He is going to stand behind me. He was going to be with these men in the boat, was he not? He was going to get this to the other side. So I got nothing to be afraid about no matter what lies in the path. So, so that's the whole point that we can. But, but here's what they do. They twist the, the, the uh, vocabulary. Uh, and and I've, I mentioned the therapeutic gospel. I didn't come up with that term. That's been around for some time. But it's really uh, uh, they don't want a biblical analytical approach uh, to, that God is the beginning, the end of all manners, and that his glory is the preeminent aim. They want something different. You know, they're going to look at it and say, well, man, God must have been really bad to put Adam in that situation where he did what he did. You know, have you ever been there 
And, and what was it I heard that knucklehead say down in, in Wilmington? Have you ever been there and had a bad boss when he was talking about one of the prophets who was upset because the people of God were not doing what they had to do and he was rebuking them? And he used that as an example. Again, another pastor of a large church used that as an example to say, have you ever had a bad boss? He's like this. And I wish I could remember the passage. I want to think it was maybe Jeremiah. I cannot remember. But I'm sitting there like, I looked over and I said, no. I wrote down on a sheet of paper, no, that's not what he's saying. Yeah, you know, and it was just, people were just like, you know, yeah, yeah, that's what's going on. But that's what they, they want to hear. Uh, they proclaim there's no absolutes in life. You know, just like the devil. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of that tree? Is that what he said? I don't know. There's the doubt, right? And, and that's how it works. And they virtue signal, and I won't get into that, but anyway... Uh, they, they may often hear uh, some of this virtue signal. I will mention this is authenticity or I'm authentic. I just want to be authentic as your leader here, you know, and that's a new thing out is authentic leadership. Let me, I am going to read you part of a, a, a article and I got it out of uh, whatever it was, psychology today or some weird magazine. But anyway, yeah, psychology today. Bill George, the former CEO of Medtronic, often speaks of climbing the corporate ladder early in his career at Honeywell and becoming delusioned with himself. He mentions wearing cufflinks to try to impress the board of directors. He recalls, one day I'm driving home. It's a beautiful day. I looked in the mirror and I'm miserable. I don't like the businesses I'm in. I'm not passionate about uh, that, but, but, uh, but most importantly, I don't like myself. George was acting inauthentically to impress others and had personal transformation, which led him to switch industries and begin acting in a way that felt more congruent with his true self. And it goes on and talks about, guess what? No mention of God in this whatsoever. It's all about, I just want you to know, sometimes I think bad thoughts. That's not even the point. You, you know, no man on earth could ever get up and preach if that was a qualification, well, you know, uh, in order to be the pastor of a church, you have to uh, hold the office of, of elder. You can't ever have a bad thought. <laughs> well, there would be uh, zero, and there would have been how many apostles? Uh, Zippo is how many there would have been. And so we see this happening is, is we just have to realize where we are is the point. And they begin to mislabel what you do because now all these emotional people is when you begin to explain why somebody who is a godly saint uh, loves you and passionately is desire, loves you as much, but I, but I can't be around you anymore. Really? You love me? I love my wife. I have a covenant I have made with her. And what that means is I'm going to be faithful to her, God willing every day of my life, all the way to the end of her life, till death, or my life, till death do us part. That is love. That is a, a, is a subtype of the love that Jesus has for us. Is he leaving me? No. No. Do I come here every week because this is great, man. I don't have anything else going on in life. Um, I'm bored if I don't do any preaching, which is partially true. Uh, but, but, but that's not the end of it, is it? I'm here because I love you. You're here because you love me. This is an encouragement. 
You know, when people don't show up, and I love you. Okay. I'm going to guess you do, but I don't know. I know the people that are faithful to the household of God love God and love his people. I'm not guessing. Okay. And you say, well, that's mean. See, here we go. This is what people are afraid of. Dennis is mean. Okay, go find somebody who thinks I'm mean. I'll go down with you in a fight if the fight is just. Okay? If you're my friend and you rob a bank and, and go to prison for it, I'm not going to uh, shoot it out with the police for you. I'm sorry. I'm not going to testify and lie on, uh, on the stand about your whereabouts to get you out of it. But I will come visit you in prison and testify to you about Christ or encourage you or whatever it takes. I don't really care about that part. I'll stand by you. But that's what we need, isn't it? That's love. That's what we need to do. But what they'll do is they'll say, well, you're narrow-minded, you're bigoted, or uh, a big word that they like to throw around, misogynistic, which is like, well, you mean you don't want women to pastor a church? No, I mean, God says that women can't pastor the church. I, he didn't even ask me about that. You know, he didn't say, hey, Dennis, what do you think about this passage? Do you think women should pastor the old office? Of he didn't even ask me about that. That was written long before I ever knew about Jesus Christ. I think it was even written before I was born in 1964. I'm joking about that part. It was written before 1964. <laughs> so it, it, I just don't understand it. But now here is the news. Going back to what I said about those philosophies. There's nothing new under the sun. Listen, turn over to 2 Timothy 4, and then I'm, we're, we're out of here. We're coming down to the end, I promise you. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5 says, I charge thee therefore before God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Now, verse 3 is what we want to catch. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We are at that time. People do not endure sound doctrine. What, we're going to do this all day? I can't endure that much. But after their own lust, they shall heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Now my point is this. Do people turn away to fables in this day and age? Do Christians want to believe fables today? The answer is they have trouble with it. They have trouble enduring. And that's what we, and we all are there, so it's not unique. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of therapeutic things that go on, and you could go through a list uh, un until you're sick of hearing about it. So we have to just understand today, and where we're going to leave off, is, is to understand that this has been a problem. I'll give you one last example of where this actually, true story, this is a true story that happened in the church, okay, that, that deals with this type of problem where there was a group of believers, there was a church leader who was afraid. And because of his fear, he drew other church leaders out with him into a false uh, belief. And it was, for the, it was for the fearless leadership of another church leader that stopped it. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 says this, but when Cephas, and that's the Apostle Peter, so you're aware of that, came to Antioch, 
I opposed him. Now, this is Paul saying this. I opposed him face to face because he stood condemned. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't you afraid that he was an apostle, Paul, like yourself? Didn't you want to sweep this under the rug and kind of bring him back into the back office here and kind of say, hey, hey, Peter, let's talk about this. You're, You're a fine evangelistic leader. You've led many people to Jesus Christ. You're one of the inner circle here. Uh, let, let's not let this thing blow. No, he have stood him and, and he condemned him, it says. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. What was his problem? Here it comes. Fearing. Fearing. Same guy in the boat right here who's in fear with Jesus going to the other side, who was a professional sailor and was afraid in the storm, is now what? He's afraid of what these Judaizers are doing. So he's fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Well, we just got through the Sermon on the Mount some time ago where the hypocrites commended by Jesus and say, man, you guys are doing a great... No, they were condemned. So the Apostle Paul is standing bravely in the face of all of this. He might be the lone man out on this as far as I can tell. I'm sure he maybe has others with him. So that it says even Barnabas, who again was mentioned in this morning's message, so I was listening. Um, so, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, what happened? They chose to believe ideologies rather than the word of God. And that's what the apostle Paul was calling these men out for. Now, did Peter lose his apostleship? No, he did not. Uh, did, did Barnabas lose his position in the church? No. Did they have to get this corrected? Yes. Are we sometimes there? Absolutely. You, you, you know, uh, over time, as, as we've heard many a day, we've all grown in our theology. Well, as we learn things, I want my theology just to be what God knows to be true or what God, God teaches us to be true. I don't care about what I, if, if I'm shown to be wrong. I just care that I get it right before the Lord. And that's faith. I have faith in God, and I want to know his word. And that's what's going to drive the fear out of your life, is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of, of his word. So we'll, we'll continue that next time. We'll look at an example. In fact, we're going to look at some things uh, connected to what this morning's message was, which is being a spirit-filled believer and how you make decisions being a spirit-filled believer. And then we'll go back into the boat there and, and land on the other side at some point. But anyway... Uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for this opportunity to stand before you. Uh, Lord, I'm so thankful for your word, which is truth. And Lord, I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, I'm so thankful for your grace, which saves us, Lord, because we certainly are not by nature repentant because of our sins. But Lord, help us to be a repentant people for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.